Welcome to your upfront moment. We're building a confidence revolution. Hi friend, welcome back to your Upfront Moment. This week I am joined by Joita Daz, who is the co-founder and the CEO of Samudra Oceans. Joy is a serial deep tech leader. She's an organisation builder, engineer, climate tech specialist, advisor and investor. She has helped build global businesses from the ground up and scale them to hundreds of millions of dollars in value, managing from three-person to 800-person strong teams. In this conversation, we talked about confidence and how confidence is a bit like flying a plane. Yes, Joy has flown a plane and regularly flies microlights. We talked about the reality of selling a business, of exiting. She shared with us how important it is to think long term about the work you do, your job and the long term impact that your work is having on people and the planet. We talked about redefining our idea of what success is and she shared three of her top leadership lessons from 2023. There's so much insight in this conversation. Let's go. Welcome to your Upfront Moment, Joy. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. We are here to talk about confidence and leadership, but I'd love to start at the top. Like, Tell us who you are, what are you working on? Tell us your story. I wish it was as straight in my head as I'm trying to tell it now. Um, so I'm really an entrepreneur and techie. Basically started out as an engineer, working in regular, very Silicon Valley engineering jobs, and then fell into entrepreneurship, like literally fell in as in there was no plan. It just kind of happened. And then along the way, ended up making a few ventures and got acquired, one that failed, but like three that got acquired. And now currently in the process of making a climate tech company called Samudra Oceans, where we basically are trying to automatize and robotize sea farms because, you know, macroalgae like seaweed capture a lot of carbon from the air and we would like to encourage that. It's good for the planet, it's good for the economy and provides a lot of employment to coastal communities, so multi-pronged effect. That's what I'm busy doing. I do wear a few minor hats now and then. So I'm an advisor to multiple LPs. I've also been a VC for a short while, and I'm still advisor and venture partner to a few deep tech funds across the world. So I'm involved a little bit in the ecosystem, 10 to 20% of the time, but majority of my time is spent on building my own venture. Amazing. And where does confidence fit into this for you? What's your relationship with confidence like? I think in general, I'm a confident person by confident I don't mean that I'm not scared or fearful of outcomes I think I just have a good coping mechanism it's a bit like flying so those who are pilots in the audience if they have ever tried it and I try to fly small aircrafts and micro lights I I feel like lots of people think that when you take off after a while you're just not afraid of the heights anymore that's not true it's just uh, different coping mechanisms kick in so danger is real, but fear is a choice. So so kind of like that. I think it's a mechanism that I've hardened over the years. And my relationship with confidence, I'd say in general, is I'm, I'm a confident person. 
and you regularly fly planes? Did I oh, say? no, not regularly. I try, try to learn for a while. And if I get the time, I still try micro lights and things like that. But I'm not really a regular flyer. Thanks to a life that takes 120% of my bandwidth. I don't really do anything other than stay alive. But yeah, that, that's kind of like the analogy that came to mind when you spoke about confidence. I guess the other thing I would share about confidence is journey versus outcome. I personally find, maybe it's not true for everybody, but I personally find that when you're very fixated on the type of outcome you want, it really eats away in your confidence. It gives you a lot of tenacity and direction, but there's a lot of fear because you wake up every day paralyzed. What if ABC does not happen? I found that it's much easier to influence ABC as an outcome if you stop thinking about that as the only goal and make the journey the means as well, not just the destination. And if you're really enjoying the journey, then the outcome is an emergent thing that happens or it doesn't, but at least you've had a good time along the way. And that really helps to bring in confidence rather than just focusing on the outcome. It's really good advice. I mean, you've had a remarkable business career. You mentioned three of your businesses have been acquired. Like, talk to me about, you know, for so many folks listening, the idea of exiting, selling a business is the thing that you're we're working towards. So what was the reality of that like for you? Painful in all cases, because whether an exit gets you the kind of platform or finance or whatever you need, it does mean that the baby you grew up as your own is adopted by somebody else. So it is a very painful process. And acquisition comes with multiple barriers. It isn't just about the process of it, which is also hard. Like you have a team and there's a lot of due diligence and it takes a couple of years and then many process may take up to about, you know, a year or whatever. It's also what comes after. It's like wedding versus marriage. The day is over and then you have a lifetime of it. So you kind of get acquired, yes, but it's barely the end because normally you have multiple escrows after that. You're basically tied into your payouts for many years. So suddenly you don't have a lot of control over the thing that you did control to get success, but you're tied in and you're having to provide input with a change in authority, change in life, change in mindset. It's like going from being the one calling the shots to the one who gets told what to do and still produce outcomes. It's a big shift for most entrepreneurs and it's almost always painful, the process of giving up what you love, even if it's what we call a good outcome. The second reality of it is planning. I think that it's slightly easier, I wouldn't say entirely easy, but easier for investors to push founders towards they set the goals, get acquired, get an exit because they can take their shares out and liquidate and, you know, put it in the fund back or whatever. What they fail to realize, whether consciously or unconsciously, I'd like to think that every system is designed for incentives, so probably on purpose to some extent, that the founder in this process isn't really getting an exit exit. The founder has a much longer path even after that, connected to this Mm. very entity. So it's not really an entire exit functionally, maybe just financially. So planning for it means planning for a lot of letting go, which is psychologically very hard. Yeah, it's so refreshing and helpful just to hear you talk about that because I don't think we get to hear those stories. We only see the shiny headlines. And you've talked a lot about 
broken systems and particularly the broken systems within the startup and the kind of funding ecosystem. Like talk to me about what you see there that is broken, what needs to change and, you know, what can women like you and me and the folks listening in, what can we do about it? First of all, I think first principles, we have to question the nature of the instrument. Okay, so startups by nature for a long time have not been associated with profitability or small scale or goal orientated. We have only heard of one style, which is Silicon Valley style, get a lot of VC funding, get on the cover of TechCrunch, be really famous, try to be unicorn and exit. It's a lot of glamour. Um, The problem with that kind of a bubble is it attracts a particular type of personality and people. And those who are well, I wouldn't say well-rounded, who have slightly different mindsets don't then get into this world because it doesn't seem like a thing that they would want to do. That's not great because the problem is it just becomes a very self-serving bubble, which it is majorly right now. And once you say the word bubble, by definition, you have excluded a few people from it, actually a large number. And as usual, it tends to be people who weren't in a position of power and privilege before the bubble started, which is minorities, women, and a ton of other people who just don't get to penetrate that bubble. So it seems fundamentally broken and broken also because you would evaluate the effectiveness of anything by the outcome it produces over a long time and system. So what are the outcomes in the world right now? Sure, you can get a food delivered to your house in five seconds. And yes, you can buy 20 things in five minutes the moment you go online because an algorithm suggests what else you should buy. But are these all fundamentally benefiting every corner of society? Are the people who weren't well off before more well off? Is there more private capital right now in the world or is there more social capital? And if you look at that, it does look like that fundamentally as a system, it hasn't benefited us that much because those who weren't doing well are still not doing well. They're probably doing worse. Some segments have kind of gotten into mainstream, but they're still struggling. So what has this big instrument of startup world, the trillion dollar asset class of early stage investing, what has it really achieved? All the shiny things are fine. Food delivery and a bike and a great social media. But actually, what are the biggest changes that need to happen in the world? In fact, the sad truth is it probably completely failed because the biggest thing of a species is survival. And we are sitting on top of climate crisis. We are running out of resources because we are blindly trying to build companies that are built with the policy of just make more, no matter what at the cost of. So has VC and startup actually achieved something or brought us to the brink of this position where we are today, where blind growth is killing us. So I think that we have to fundamentally re-examine the instrument. So either redefine it or bring in other instruments, one of the two. Say that this is one kind and we can't change. That's the nature of us. Early stage, product-led, lots of software, quick iterations, lots of money, lots of risk appetite, no profitability. And yes, we can't bring in a lot of diversity. Then we need other instruments that need to come in and they need to be well-funded as well. Or we need to expand this instrument and include those points of view and say, we also need sustainability. We also need conscious businesses. We have to fund 50% women and minorities. One of the two needs to happen. Otherwise, we're going to continue with the crisis that is in the world right now that we're running out of every single big resource we need for our kids to even get to teenage. But what does that look like practically, do you think, for people listening who are founders, entrepreneurs, 
and also people who are employees, freelancers, like how do we start to redesign, look at this instrument? I think we have to question how much discomfort we will take in the near short term to change Mm -hmm. definitions. So there is a lot of change in the long term. So what that means is in your everyday work in life, can we go back and question the things that keep us very safe and comfortable? So maybe just doing a job at a regular investment fund is making your life great. You can get one more bedroom and slightly bigger car, but is it really good for your kids in the next 30 years and the world? So are you going to go back and question the very parameters that it is built on? Just bring it into your work, even if it makes you a little uncomfortable, just to bring that perspective. I think LPs also need to start looking at VCs slightly differently. I think some of them are doing it, but it's a drop in the ocean. But a lot more need to do it. Like, what is your mandate? Does it include enough diversity? Does it actually include sustainability? Because these are all very connected. And then from a founder's perspective, I think we need to let go of the glamour of just being very, very cool at the cost of everything going to the dogs. Like, what does coolness really mean? I mean, it basically reminds me of a person in a very good-looking tux literally dying. Like, what do you want to pick? Live longer in a T-shirt or wear a tux and just die? That's literally what coolness seems to me right now. Do you really want to be cool or do you want to live in a planet where you don't have to put on a mask all the time? Like, which one will it be? So founders maybe need to question about not giving into this blind glamour all the time and think about what is actually good, even if it's not exactly 100% according to the rules of what makes you cool right now. Maybe the new cool is about being thoughtful. Maybe that's the new cool. It's cool to care, right? What advice would you give to women who are in the midst of navigating messy, uncomfortable challenges in their business? Don't change yourself too much to accommodate progress. We start to take a lot of new terms into the equation because that's the system telling us, well, if you do want to succeed, it's going to be on my terms. I don't call that success because then you're not you anymore. So I think there is great place potential and energy in a woman being herself, true to herself, and still achieving success. Will it take slightly longer and harder? Maybe, but it's still going to be yours on your terms. And I would really, really advise women to not give into the narrative of uh, you have to be just like a man. You can be if you want to. That's fine. That is a choice. But if you don't want to, that is also fine. You can be you, whatever that you is uniquely, and still say that I still demand success on my terms because why not? So navigate those challenges with your unique skill sets. Navigate those challenges with your mind process. Yes, you can reach out to mentors and advisors that you value and respect, but at the end of the day, do it in your unique way. It doesn't have to be an archaic formula or a blueprint that a male-led industry has used for the last 200 years. We end up becoming exactly like what has been happening for so long. How is that a solution? So be uniquely you and navigate through the challenges. If we don't end up navigating the challenge, and for some reason, the venture doesn't work. I mean, so be it. Thousands of male adventures also don't work. I don't see that stopping any man from trying something again. So, you know, it's part of the journey. Just give it your best and be uniquely you. Yeah, I love that advice of defining success on your terms. It's really important. Let's talk a little about leadership 
What's been your biggest leadership lesson of 2023? My biggest lesson for this year has been to, to not be apologetic for feeling and thinking the way I feel. I think I've spent an outstanding amount of my life being given feedback by a lot of male mentors about apologizing, like, you know, when it doesn't work, this is how you need to be humble or whatever. And as much value as I've seen that, I haven't seen them giving that advice to any male founders, <laughs> just be more humble, humble and apologize more. They never say it to the guys. So I think one of the things I learned is I'm going to apologize for hurting someone's feelings because that is valid. If they're hurt, that deserves an apology, regardless of what I said or what I did. But I'm not going to apologize for having a point of view because that is my unique right as well. And that has been a big shift in my leadership style because it just comes with the caveat that you're not constantly apologizing for being you. And I think this eats in the style of leadership for many women. They're just always like, I did it along. Like, I'm sorry you say it and then you're terrified. And I'm like, no, be sorry for hurting someone and connect with them. But why be sorry for having a point of view or thinking about things the way you do? We all have a right to think the way we, we want to. So that's been one big shift. I've been a bit more non-apologetic about thinking and feeling. The second big shift has been about, I think, in face-to-face interactions, the one big thing I learned is respond to the person rather than exactly what they're saying. Because whatever they're saying is the content of their language, but their emotion and their feeling and their body language is actually telling you the whole story. So respond to the person rather than the exact thing. And I think that goes under the category of probably empathy or listening or whatever you want to call it. That's been a big lesson. I think that requires you to pay attention. That requires you to pay attention. That requires you to put away your phone. That requires you to stop looking at your Apple Watch. That requires you to stop being very conscious about yourself. How do I look? And, you know, what's my jeans and sneakers and hair or whatever? It's not you. All your attention is on the person in front of you. Maybe you'll see some things that will make you a much better communicator. That was the second big lesson of leadership. And the third biggest lesson for me was understanding how leadership has evolved post-COVID. I've been trying to observe how leadership has evolved. And I think that a lot of leaders had gone into wartime mode because of COVID. It was wartime mode, less resources, less time. How do we win? And because that can be a comfortable mode for a sort of personalities, they have stuck to it. They're not leaving the wartime mode. It would be nice to move into peacetime mode. <laughs> it's like, you know, we have time, we have resources. Can we do the right thing here? Three really powerful lessons. Thank you for sharing, especially the one about not apologizing and not faking humbleness, I think is really, really valid. So the last question I'd love to ask you, Joita, which is a question I ask all our guests is when we at Upfront achieve our mission of supporting a million women with their confidence and their leadership and their visibility, how will the world be different from your point of view? Wow, I think the biggest multi-systems crisis in the world will go away. And I have actual data to support it. So Project Drawdown lists empowering women as one of the top five solutions in climate crisis, which is a global crisis. Basically, it is found that over 91 countries in a research, more than 91 countries, they found that the representation of women in parliament was directly connected to how open-minded their policies were about social support and environment. 
representation of women in boards is directly correlated to their carbon emissions disclosure. But it's sad that we're still not doing that. I mean, in deep tech, there's mainly sort women. Less than 1% women invested by VCs, even today, even with all the talk in drama, that's still the case. Uh, less than 30% of all trials in the IPCC report for women. So the biggest global crisis in the world still doesn't see 50% women. And for things like startup and science, almost less than 1%, which is very, very sad because it's very clear that the correlation of uh, women participating and having a seat at the table is connected to multidisciplinary progress. And this is not, I don't think it's just a very nice to have moralistic theory. It's scientifically true. Just because women play such a big fabric society, you know, of whatever role you can think of, the classical traditional role or the modern roles, we're literally there in all the decision making, just like men are, you know, you can't take one away from the other. The half of sky is someone wrote a book on. So when you bring this other half in, you suddenly have this full perspective and lens on the problem that you never had before. And that is bound to be more valuable than just this half. It has to be. And the other thing that I think is really important to know is that when this happens, this meshing, it will be a bit tough and uncomfortable for this half. Because you've seen a different style where this half was never there. So yes, it's uncomfortable for both sides to have this new status quo. But if we do it, I think that we will be solving the biggest problems in the world from disclosure to data-drivenness to social support to climate crisis. Maybe we won't be able to solve all of them right away, but we will make much bigger progress than when women are not included. Well, I'm into progress and women being included. And you are playing a big role in that with your podcast and your mission of empowering so many women. We're all just puttering along, trying to do what we can. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure to hear your story. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to this week's Upfront Moment. Before I say goodbye, I want to remind you to follow Upfront on Instagram and join the other 5,000 women all over the world who get our weekly newsletter. Go to weareupfront.com to find out more. Bye friends, I'll see you on Monday for your next Upfront Moment.